Right, welcome everyone to I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Today we have got a really exciting guest. It is Dr. Daryl Ray. Troy is going to talk to us a little bit more about who Daryl is, and then we're obviously going to dive into finding a, a, a bit more about Daryl, some of the work he does, some of the stuff that he's authored, and a lifetime of a fantastic experience that people can tap into. So, Troy, tell us a little bit about Daryl. Dr. Ray is an organisational psychologist and an author. He focuses on topics such as workplace organisational culture, secular sexuality, and the treatment of religion-induced trauma. Can you guess why we've got him on today? He's a public speaker, podcaster, atheist activist, and founded the non-profit organisation Recovering From Religion, which we've got a little bit of a relationship with. You've probably seen uh, Sherry has been posting in our group and sometimes we post in hers as well, her Facebook group. Um, and he's also involved in the Secular Therapy Project. He's the author of a book called The God Virus, How Religion Affects Our Lives and Culture. And his podcast, Sexual Sexuality, addresses human sexuality from an atheist or freethinker's viewpoint. But most important in terms of credibility for our show, he was a teenage fundamentalist himself. So, Dr. Daryl Ray, welcome to I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Well, thank you for having me. And, you know, it never occurred to me that I was a teenage fundamentalist until just now. Okay. <laughs> I didn't realize that was a qualification. All right. <laughs> oh, it totally is. Welcome. Yeah, yeah. Right. You're among friends. All right. Well, that's that's very good. So, Dr. Ray, tell us about your background. <laughs> Who are you? Where did you come from? How did you end up where you are now and doing what you do now? Okay, well, that's a rather long story, but the short version is I grew up in Wichita, Kansas, which is in the very center of the continental United States. Um, all my family was religious, everybody around me, my mother, my father, my grandparents. My, one of my grandfathers was a uh, fundamentalist church preacher for 45 years. My parents actually became missionaries when they retired. Um, aunts and uncles, elders, deacons, you know, everything. So I grew up in a very, very religious area. I would call them, I would call my particular training more semi-fundamentalist. It wasn't super out there and it wasn't speaking in tongues or any of that. It was an independent Christian church, which really was pretty mild by the level of conservatism. But my my grandmother did uh, believe that Jesus wrote the King James Version of the Bible. So that that <laughs> might help you understand where I came from. <laughs> hold on. Hold on, Daryl. Are you telling us that Jesus didn't write the King James Version of the Bible? Well, that uh, that's what I learned later. <laughs> that's not what she thought, though. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, so I grew up in the... In the early um, '60s, I was a, I was a teenage fundamentalist in the early '60s. I, I was born in 1950. I'm 71, and it, at um, Madeline Mary O'Hare, who's the founder of American Atheist Corp, uh, American Atheist Organization, was popular about that time, or unpopular, let's put it that way, because she helped prevent prayer in schools, and that really pissed my grandmother off. So she would every now and then hear Madeline Mary O'Hare's name on the radio or television and she'd say something like that woman's worse than the devil and uh, it, it took me quite a while to get up the courage to ask my grandmother a theological question you didn't you didn't challenge my grandmother because she was <laughs> she'd take a switch out and switch you pretty bad <laughs> but it took me a few months finally i got the courage to say well well granny how can anybody be worse than the devil and she said well at least the devil believes in god 
So how do you argue with that kind of a theology, you know? So I was, I was uh, very much raised in that. And I really did, uh, I did enjoy the community. I, I was a singer. I sang tenor solos. I even got paid to be a tenor soloist in a couple churches. So I was, you know, I was a decent singer, never going to be a professional, but I was a decent singer. I really loved uh, singing and the music. Uh, but, and, and I actually taught Sunday school. I taught, High school. When I got when I got in college, I turned around and taught high school seniors Sunday school, and then I later even taught adults. When I later, I, I was I was pretty much religious or semi-religious until I was in my mid thirties, uh, because I was married to a very religious woman. To a religious woman, she wasn't very religious, but she was religious, and all of her family were fundamentalists. They were even more fundamentalist than my family, so she really could claim she was a teenage fundamentalist. But both of us kind of walked away, moved away from fundamentalism and stayed in a, in a kind of a liberal uh, Christian environment uh, until we got divorced, at which point in time I just said, screw this. I'm on my own. I don't have to follow any of this stuff. And uh, that's when I kind of declared my independence from from religion. But I, I didn't declare it in the sense of um, uh, going through an angry atheist stage or anything. I just said, this is not for me. I'm. I've got my own thing. But in the time up leading up to that, I actually taught, like I said, I taught Sunday school. But I always had the extremely liberal Sunday school teacher attitude. I, I taught evolution in churches that I was at. Now, get that, teaching evolution in a church. Uh, I taught comparative religions to a bunch of Presbyterians. I preached in Presbyterian churches. So uh, I do have the singular distinction of having never been asked to preach in the same church twice, though. Uh, I could preach a whole sermon and never meet, never mention Jesus once. So the fundamentalists don't like that. You know, you got to mention Jesus at least once, I guess. Anyway, that's the quick story. I did go to seminary. I got my undergraduate in, in uh, anthropology and sociology. And then I went on to seminary and I got a two-year degree in seminary. I thought I might be a preacher. But after two years of seminary, I realized it was all bullshit. I couldn't tell somebody else what I didn't believe myself. So I, I moved away from that. But I'm really glad I went to seminary because it taught me a lot. It gave me all the foundation for writing my my books, um, The God Virus. And, and my other book, which you didn't mention, is The Sex and God, How Religion Distorts Sexuality. That was my other book. But I don't think I could have written those books or they wouldn't have been as good of books if I hadn't had that. That basic education, and then I went on from there to be uh, to study for my doctorate in psychology, and I I went into clinical psychology for ten years. Really not related to religious issues, but always observing what was going on in people's lives, especially when religion was involved. I think it's really interesting, Daryl, and I I do think it's interesting that it was only now that it occurred to you that you're a teenage fundamentalist, because you <laughs> you certainly seemed like you were right into it. You were a big part of it, and uh, I I do like what you picked up on that those years in seminary and that training that you had is something that did really equip you because. That's something that Troy and I have often reflected on. We both went to, in Australia, we call it Bible college, seminary, same sort of thing. But it certainly equipped us with many skills that have helped us in other areas of our lives after we've left the fold, so to speak. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm interested, though, Daryl, when, when you left religion, given you're from Wichita, did you, did you use the phrase that you're, you're not in Kansas anymore? <laughs> If you came to my house and you come in the back door, you'll see a you'll see a floor mat as you that you step on. And it says 
you're not in Kansas anymore. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> hey. and, the, and even though my house is in Kansas, I consider Kansas, uh, this is liberal territory when you walk into my house. So you're not in Kansas when you get into my house. Everything in Kansas is re Republican and conservative and religious. And they're about to pass a bill to ban all, kind, all abortions and, uh, you know, make trans kids feel like they're aliens from outer space or something. It's it's pretty bad. Uh, there are worse states, but not very many, maybe four or five that are worse than Kansas. Yeah, anyway, so, yeah, I did. I have used that uh, before. <laughs> there you and go. I've watched The Wizard of Oz many times, by the way. <laughs> I've almost <laughs> got a, as a child, that was like a rite right of passage around Halloween every year. They would put that on the TV and we'd all gather around on the floor and sit and watch the Wizard of Oz and sing, sing all the songs to it. So, and oh, by the way, you may not know this, but Yip Harburg uh, was the man that wrote all the songs for Wizard of Oz. And he was an out atheist. A lot of people don't know that, but Yip Harburg was the person who wrote the songs and he was an out atheist. He was Jewish by birth, but he was an out atheist, uh, which is kind of cool. interesting. Nobody realizes the Wizard of Oz was Music was by an atheist. I'm quite surprised then that the religious right on two fronts, the Jewish front and also the uh, atheist front, haven't banned the Wizard of Oz <laughs> from screening. Yeah. That's right. Cancel well, culture. Cancel culture for the Wizard of Oz. So, right. so Daryl, tell me about how you got involved in what you're doing now then, because it sounds like your career was focused a lot on sexuality um, et cetera, but an, an organizational psych. But now you find yourself really heavily involved in this helping people deal with religious trauma, et cetera. How did you end up here? Uh, from roughly from ni 1995 until 2005, I, I was on the edge uh, of exploring and studying re religion a lot deeper. It just, I, you know, I just was ready to change. I guess I'd been in clinical psychology for 10 years, then organizational psychology for another 20 years. It's time to go on to something else. And I started studying and writing, uh, reading a lot more. And it led to me writing uh, on organizational psychology. So writing books was not a big deal. It's just I had never written a book in this particular field. I had no clue, you know, if anybody would be interested in the book or not. So I, I published the book in 2009, and it went bestseller like overnight. I, I could not believe how many copies it sold. Uh, it had that upside. The downside was all my clients for the for the company that I uh, that I the small consulting firm that I had uh, left. <laughs> and within six months, I'd lost virtually all my clients because um, a lot of my clients were religious and they didn't like the fact that I was an out atheist, even though they'd known me some of them for 10, 20 years. They didn't know I was an atheist. So that, I guess, kind of screwed that up. But anyway, as a result of that book and, and the number of readers, within months, I was getting questions and calls and I need help. I don't have anybody to talk to. So it gave me the idea to um, hold a meeting and just have people come. To, I announced it on meetup.com. This is early 2009, meetup.com. And two weeks later, I held this meeting in the back of a little restaurant here. And uh, 11 people showed up. And I only knew one of these 11 people. And I listened, I asked two questions. I just said, how did religion hurt you? And how have you benefited from leaving? And like three hours later, the restaurant owner or manager is kicking us out because he's closing the store. And in that three hours, I saw 
anger. I saw trauma. I saw crying. I saw, you know, I heard horrible stories. And so I got 11 people in this room that are just pouring their souls out that nobody's ever asked them about this. And yet it, it, it was just barely below the surface. It's just an explosion of emotion in that in that three hour meeting. Now, I'm a psychologist. I'm a I'm good group leader. I can manage a group. And and I managed the group, you know, I, I kept control of it. So everybody got to talk and, and co-op and uh, participate. But at the end of it, I thought, you know, originally I kind of thought this might be a good way to sell some books, get get some more people to read it. But at the end of that meeting, I thought, no, this isn't a gimmick for selling books. This is the real thing. These people need help. Now, how can I help them? And uh, in April, actually 13 years ago this month, we I started recovering from religion. And we started, I started looking for people to help me, putting a team together. It took me about five years to slowly build the team and, and the software, because a lot of what we do is online. And uh, for about the last eight years, we've been, we've been really hitting on all eight cylinders or six cylinders, whatever you, or electric, electric cars or whatever. We're really doing well. And we've grown dramatically, just almost, uh, almost 100% growth every year for the last three years. And that that it kind of happened accidentally. I wasn't looking to start recovering from religion. I was that wasn't my goal. My goal was to get my book out. But since that time, I realized there's a lot of pain in this world, and it's um, a huge amount of the pain is related to religion and religiosity and religious trauma and religious abuse. Just so much, so much. So, Daryl, it, it sounds like a, an amazing initiative, and it, it's funny how these things come about. Um, with you set out with one intention, and and then you have to respond because of the the need before you. Tell me, um, or tell us a, a bit about recovering recovering from religion, um, and I guess what it sets out to do, and what does the org do with those people that do become involved? Well, it's an organization designed to provide peer support. Uh, and and we provide incredibly sophisticated training for people who come and volunteer with us. And we're always looking for volunteers, by the way. Uh, and it doesn't matter where you live on the planet. And you can you can pretty well live anywhere as long as you've got an internet connection. You can still volunteer for us. But what we do is we we bring people in as volunteers to answer phone calls and chats. And we get chats from everywhere from Pakistan to Germany from South Africa to Canada, that you name it, almost probably three-fourths of all the countries on the planet have chatted with us, including China and Russia. I, I won't say any more about Russia, but with respect to China, China has really locked itself out of the rest of the internet. It's hard to get into China, and yet people still find us occasionally. Not very often, though. I'm, I'm not going to say that. But the number of people from Norway, from and we get people from Finland. It's it's crazy. You think of these countries that are very secular, and yet we get calls from people who are in, in cults or in fundamentalist religions in places like Finland. And it's really shocking to, to think this is everywhere. There's no corner of the planet that people aren't trying, aren't being hurt by religion. It, it's really interesting, Daryl, when you, you talk about Finland. Um, Certainly, uh, another podcast we listen to is Heaven Bent by Tara Jean Stevens, and, and we reflected with her 
that quite often we hit the charts, you know, top the charts in Finland, in Sweden, all those countries that you wouldn't <laughs> think. And, uh, you know, it's, it's what you say too. So it's it's almost like a bit of an underground movement um, yeah. of people seeking help in the areas that you don't think that they would be. So, yeah, we, we yeah. Sh- share your insights into that. I, I think it goes to show that, you know, in spite of the fact that the the country may be you know, representing this demographic, there's still pockets of these people. I mean, even Australia. Yeah. I mean, Australia, there's only yeah. hundreds of thousands of Pentecostals, and yet it impacted our life in such a massive way. Yep, absolutely. And we get quite a few calls from Australia, and we have several really good volunteers in Australia. And we have we have a bunch of groups there. We've got groups in, in Sydney. Uh, we've got a, a group in Perth. Uh, we've got a group in uh, New Zealand as well. So, we, you know, we're we are about to expand there before i move that move to that piece though because i do want to talk about why what we're doing expansion wise but um let me just say that when people come to us they need help and we're not professional therapists i am but of course most of our volunteers are just engineers you know they're teachers they're somebody like that and they're willing to go through our training and we we train people very thoroughly and our basic we we're here to provide hope healing and support for anyone dealing with issues of doubt and non-belief. We do not, con- con- we aren't here to convert or deconvert anybody. In fact, we are, we are rigid. <laughs> we're not rigid about many things, but that's one thing we are. You will not try to convert anybody. You won't argue with people. You won't tell them they're smart or dumb for whatever belief they had. You are here to help them in their journey. We train our agents. You, you work with them where they're at, not where you want them to be, but where they're at now and help them make the decision where they want to go. And if that means they want to go back to church, we'll help them find a church. If they want to get out of religion, we'll help them do that. But it's up to them. It is not up to us. It's their life. It's not our life. And that's a hard thing for people. Uh, it's a hard thing for new volunteers to grasp sometimes. And we lose a lot of volunteers within hours after they come. And they realize, oh, I can't argue with people. I can't tell them they're stupid for believing this they don't realize how damaging that approach can be too. It can actually drive people back into religion. So if your goal is to help people in their own journey, in their own life, you've got to be, you've got to be more considerate of the emotional component and, and how to help them process the emotions that they're experiencing as a result of the religious abuse they experienced. You cannot tell somebody who's experienced trauma that they should get over it. That, that just does not work. So, the, and the other side of the coin is, you know, a lot of our volunteers come to us with trauma and they're working through that themselves. So we have to teach them, here's how you help somebody else. And maybe in the process of doing that, you'll actually work some of that out yourself, which is, which is a side benefit. It's not our primary goal, of course. I could imagine that that must happen a lot because I mean, even, even Brian and I hosting this podcast, I mean, we've got our own trauma. That's what brought us here. And, and I've heard it said, you know, a lot of people are drawn to psychology as a profession because they're dealing with their own issues in the first place. So I would imagine right. that there must be some complexity there. Do you ever find that you have to actually say to people, hey, how about you get on the other end of the call and we talk to you rather than <laughs> you talk to other people? It does happen. It doesn't happen very often. And the reason it doesn't happen very often is because we have such a good screening system and we have a good training system. Now, it we didn't start off this good. It took us years to get this system in place and to 
really train our trainers. Uh, our, our trainers right now, the people who are training other people themselves were once just agents taking phone calls and taking chats, but they showed up a, a real um, facility for the work and they learned and we taught them other things. And we've got another clinical psychologist uh, working as a volunteer that helps train people. Uh, we just have some really dedicated, but also very skilled people in the training process. And what we find is early in the training process is where a lot of people wash out. Maybe, maybe as much as um, 30, 40% of all the people who come to volunteer with us get within, get a, get an, an hour or two of our training and realize, oh, this isn't for me, or I don't think I'd do this. Now, that doesn't mean they couldn't. It means emotionally they're not ready for this. Because this could be, this can be difficult. It, when a caller calls in and says, you know, I was sexually abused by my father, who's the preacher of our church. That's fucking screwed up. That is tough. And our volunteers need to know how to handle that. And we do. We, we've got some, and, and also our volunteers need to know when something is bigger than they are, when they can't handle something. And when to turn it over to another volunteer or turn it over to a, a trainer uh, or refer them to a suicide hotline, for example, or, or a warm line. There's, there's other resources that we, we're very quick. Uh, we have it right at our fingertips. We can get resources into people's hands and get them on, on their way. But we'll chat with somebody for an hour or two. We will stay on the phone for 30 minutes, an hour, sometimes even longer, just helping people. Uh, without our own agenda, just listening, just not, not unlike a therapist would do, but we're not therapists and we're not doing therapeutic interventions. We're just a well-trained, listening, compassionate ear. And you know, that's awesome. That's all a lot of people need. They don't need a psychologist. They just need a listening ear that says, you know, you're not alone. We get a lot of people calling us up saying, I'm afraid of hell. You know, we might ask them, well, you know, one of our early questions we often ask people when they call us about fear of hell, because that's like 50 to 60 percent of all the people that call into us have a fear of hell. And we have to establish, begin with, which hell are you afraid of? The Muslim hell or the Christian hell or the Hindu hell? You know, there's lots of different hells. And just that one question sometimes gets a lot of silence on the other end of the line. And they think, oh, I didn't know there was other hells. <laughs> Now that's a that's an intellectual approach to something, but then we have to get down and we have to listen to them and help them process their emotions. And I can't go to sleep at night because I'm of this fear of hell. It's it's like, and I, I'm not making light of this at all. When I was a kid, there was a robot that lived in my closet, and I was scared shitless that he was going to come out of that closet and kill me. And there was many a night I, I sat there. In my bed, I couldn't even lay down. I just sat there in my bed because I was afraid of that robot coming out and killing me. Now that's kind of the that that's kind of the way hell is. You get you get your brain is indoctrinated, programmed, traumatized. Then that focuses. Now, why did I believe there was a robot in my in my closet? It's because I watched a, a horror movie. I was like four or five years old, and I watched a horror movie that had a robot that killed somebody. And somehow that got into my head and I could not get it out. This went on for quite a while, as I recall, maybe a year or two. 
Uh, no, it didn't happen every night, but it happened often enough. So that's the way hell and, and ideas like that get into your head. You're going to hell if you don't go to Sunday school. You're going to hell if you don't read your Bible and memorize your Bible verses. That gets into kids' heads. And then when they become an adult, it can come out. And it can come out in, in behaviors that are self-destructive. And so we, we really work with a lot of people on these kinds of issues. And then we oftentimes refer them to therapists who are trained in dealing with this kind of, of um, trauma if you will. And, and that leads, you know, that'll lead me to the talking about the second therapy project a little bit later. I, I guess another question I had for you though, on that is what does success look like in, in terms of recovering from religion? <sighs> you know, it's really hard to measure. We have anecdotal, um, for example, somebody calls us or chats in with us and six months later, they call back and chat and tell us how how wonderful the help was and that they're now out of their church and they've dealt with their family. And we, we get those uh, not as often as we'd like, but we do get them quite a bit. Um, the other thing we like seeing is for example, having, having some call, someone call us up and a year later show up in, in our volunteer list. They come back to volunteer because they they've dealt with uh, both of those examples. I would say we clearly are successful. Uh, on other measures, we look at the chats. Uh, we, we can't document it as much on phone calls, but I can look at a chat and I can see the progression of the chat. And at the end, if the person can, we're very good at helping people articulate uh, a plan. If we can help them make a plan. You know, how do I deal with my mother-in-law or how do I tell my dad that I don't believe anymore? It's, it's an emotional decision it's really difficult emotionally to deal with that because you don't want your fear of rejection by your own parents the feeling of shunning if you're Jehovah's witnesses there's a lot of deeply emotional fears that happen in that situation so we will sit down and, and talk with somebody carefully about what are the steps you can go through to protect yourself or protect your children or you make it as safe as possible but ultimately help them make their own decisions about where they want to go. And if at the end of the chat, we have a, they have a plan of action that is fairly well outlined and they have agreed to move in that direction. I consider that a success. And the reason I say that is nobody ever sat down and did that with them before. We are the very first people, their minister certainly never did that. Their parents aren't going to do that with them. Their teachers in school have no business trying to do that with them. So they have nowhere to, to help plan, to think out the plan that is emotionally safe for them. And I consider that a success. You know, the, the, other, the other measure of success, Troy, is the growth in the number of volunteers that come to us every year and the growth in the number of chats and phone calls that we take every year. It's been a steady upward growth, uh, certainly for the last five years. And the last three years has just blown up exponentially. Another another measure of success that I look at, and this is a good question you ask, and I wish I could just point to one, but another measure of success is our, the number, number and level of donations that we get. We are seeing much more interest in supporting us financially than we did even, even three years ago. So, I mean, people must think we're doing something worthwhile or they wouldn't put their dollars, Australian dollars too. We get Australian dollars, by the way. <laughs> 
we wouldn't be getting financially support. Um, I hope that answered that question a little bit. It does, and and we are we are sorry that the Australian dollar is only worth about seventy US cents, but we'll we'll try harder, Daryl. We'll we'll take it. We'll take it. If you want to, you can go to um, GuideStar, GuideStar.com, I think is this. That is the um, charity organization that we are listed with, and we have a we have a their highest rating is we're a platinum rated organization, um, and you can read our you can read our annual report, and their annual report actually goes through all the metrics uh, that I've just named here and many more, because every every January our leadership team sets down and throws all the metrics into the report so that we can put it up on GuideStar and maintain our, our platinum rating. We are very open about our finances. Uh, we're very transparent about how we spend the money. Um, and we are gonna spend some money next year, early next year. Uh, we're gonna spend some money to come to Australia. And we're gonna do a bit of a speaking tour. We're gonna meet with all the volunteers we've got there. We're probably gonna go to Perth, we may go to Adelaide, we're Sydney. We're probably gonna go to Melbourne, who knows? I mean. Gold Coast. I've been to been to many of those, but anyway, it it'll be a, a trip to really highlight, get some press, news media coverage, and and we'll want to talk to you guys before we come out there or at, while we're out there. We we'll want to try to push push it a little bit. Yeah, we'd we'd love that. We'd definitely um, be all in, in in promoting that and connecting you up with people through our podcast. And we'd also like to connect with you when you do come out. So that'd be great. Obviously, a lot of people who come to you are coming to you just because they're fucked up by religion, essentially. But there's a name for that, um, for what they're experiencing, which is religious trauma syndrome. Now, that is something that is relatively new, I guess, to us, newish, mm-hmm. um, but it's also new to many of our listeners because it's giving a name to their experiences. Can you just talk us through a little bit of what is religious trauma syndrome? This is something that you're somewhat of an expert on. Well, let's begin with trauma, because at at the very basic, we need to understand a bit about what trauma is. And a trauma is a change in the brain. That's the simplest way to put it. And it's generally, I mean, we all understand that somebody in in, uh, Ukraine right now who just had a bomb dropped by their house, we can understand there's probably gonna be a change in their brain, right? There's no question that that would be traumatic, knowing they came close to death or they saw somebody die as a result of that bomb. So we all, we clearly understand that component of, of trauma. And so understanding that, we we can go back to people who are three, four years old and realize that uh, what is the equivalent of a bomb going off to a three-year-old? Would it be being yelled at and then spanked by your parents because you didn't memorize your Bible verse? Would that have the effect of a bomb going off to a three-year-old? And the question is, if if it does, then that trauma is related to religion. And we, we could draw a straight line between the the behavior of the child after that has happened to them and um, and what we would now call trauma based upon that bomb going off. So it, it's kind of a crude metaphor or analogy here, but I think it's important to realize 
Children are much more easily traumatized than adults are. However, that child can take their trauma into adulthood. And to that end, the American uh, uh, Center for Disease Control uh, came up with a, a very simple test that you could take. You can go on right now while I'm talking practically. It's, it's called the Adverse, Adverse Experiences Test, A-C-E, Adverse, I'm, I'm drawing a blank all of a sudden. Anyway, it's a simple test. You can get on there and say, I'll, I'll remember before we get off here. Take the test and it'll ask you questions about your childhood. And the research, the research that the CDC has done shows that certain experiences in childhood are, are highly likely to lead to trauma in childhood that then carries on into adulthood. Many, many people are traumatized in childhood and then display traumatic behaviors in adulthood. And that's, and, and when it's related direct, it's not related to a bomb going off, it's related to being told you're going to hell every Sunday for the first 10 years of your life, or terrorized because you got caught masturbating by your religious parents and they told you this will send you straight to hell, you know, or, or being spanked for having kissed your boyfriend or being, or being humiliated in front of the whole church when you're told you have to go in front of the whole church and confess that you had sex before marriage. I mean, all these things, we hear them constantly. People being humiliated and abused as teenagers and as children, and then they carry that into, into adulthood. That is religious trauma. Now, to add the word syndrome is problematic. Uh, I'll just say this. I have no problems with the word religious trauma. What the examples I just gave you very few people would argue that the trauma came from religion. When you add the word syndrome, you're saying that there's a cluster of symptoms that can be traced back to that. And I believe there is a cluster of symptoms that can be traced back to that in many cases, but not in all. And there may be other traumas that come in. For example, a very fundamentalist uh, American soldier went to Iraq experienced an IED, which killed his buddy right next to him in, in the Humvee they were in. And he came back to the States and lived with that for quite a few years before he called us. And when he called us, he wants to tell us about his trauma of the IED and uh, how he prayed to, to God to bring him back to life and it didn't happen. And oh, all these other things that happened to him as a child, being spanked regularly for not memorizing Bible verses. Now, there's a whole bunch of symptoms there we could look at. You know, he can't sleep at night. It is a, his relationships are totally disrupted. He, he, he can't deal with his kids anymore. Uh, a firecracker goes off and he hits the ground because he thinks he's about to have an IUD go off. So IED, <laughs> a little different there. So you can see that there's, it, you, these symptoms can get mixed up. They they can be, and that leads us to something we call complex post-traumatic stress disorder, complex PTSD, CPTSD. And so there's a little bit of fuzziness here. It, it's hard to diagnose these things sometimes. And I'm not going to say that all trauma comes from religion by a long shot, but I am going to say a lot of trauma is related to religion, if that makes sense. You might have had a narcissistic parent that that uh, abused you, but the, the parent wasn't religious. 
and yet you might have acquired in some other way from an aunt or an uncle this fear of hell. Well, both of those things go into the trauma that you experienced as a child. Part of it was religion oriented, part of it wasn't. So I, I think we, we got to be careful. The main thing I'd be careful about is don't diagnose yourself. If you have if you have concerns about the way you were treated in, as, as a child or as an adolescent and it's related to religion, then talk to a counselor. Talk to a counselor who's educated about religious trauma. Let them do the diagnosis. People who diagnose themselves are almost always wrong. It is very difficult to self-diagnose. It's hard enough for a trained psychologist to diagnose with a PhD in the whole process. So, and and the second thing is diagnosis. In, you know, you go to your doctor, your your family doctor, and you he looks at the symptoms and he diagnoses that you have a common cold. That leads to one type of treatment. If he diagnoses that you have strep throat, that goes to a different kind of treatment. One probably is going to ask for antibiotics. The other is just get some rest and drink lots of water. Two very different treatments. Poor diagnosis leads to wrong treatments. So don't diagnose yourself. Let somebody else do it. And let somebody who's trained in how to diagnose trauma also then try to help you find ways of treating that trauma. And, there are, and the good news is just in the last 10 or 15 years, actually even less than that, maybe 10 years, we have developed through good scientific research incredibly effective ways of dealing with trauma. It comes out of the experience of the U.S. Army, mainly in Iraq and Iran. The United States government realized we got to learn. We got to do something about this. We can't just let guys come back and uh, lose their marriages, lose their kids, not work for the rest of their life, go on disability. We have to do something. So they did. and They put a lot of money and time between roughly 2002 and 2015 into research on, tra on trauma. And that that research has now led us to understand trauma in a much wider capacity, including religious trauma. And so my the good news is we have treatments and they work. And they're beautiful treatments that um, we didn't have 10 years ago. Some of we didn't even have five years ago. It takes time for the science to get validated. You know, there's lots of people that think they could treat trauma 10, 20 years ago. And they were wrong because there was no science behind it. But now we've got science that that points to certain specific ways of treating it. I, I, yeah, I could have been a preacher, right? I can preach all day about this stuff. <laughs> well, you, you are a preacher. You're just preaching some very alternate stuff, which we are more than happy to support rather than all right, what you there did. There you go. <laughs> yes. So you can say raw men, you know what that means, raw men? It's it's a dish, isn't it? No, 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 no. I'm not. I you don't know this about me. See, you you need to do your research. I am the high priest of the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster. Oh, you you are the high priest, are you? I, I am the, and there's only one of us. Uh -huh. And when I die, I have to find somebody else. But only one of us, and I'm high priest for. I'm higher than the fucking pope. <laughs> Nobody's higher than me. And so what I say is, of course, the, the gospel truth. And when I say something you agree with, you could say raw men because you're a pastafarian. 
Are you familiar with Pastafarianism? Yeah, yeah, very much. I, I used to, I when my kids used to ask me about God at one stage, I used to tell them that we were uh, devotees of the flying spaghetti monster. And I also used to tell them that we believed in the giant teapot that exists between <laughs> heaven, uh, sorry, between earth and the moon. And then they'd say to there me, what go. do you mean? And I said, well, if that's there, God could be right next to it. So you know, good luck finding that one. Well, now you can go tell your kids you've actually talked to the high priest. Yeah, I will indeed. I, trust yeah, me, I will. See, you are you are hit the heights here. See, uh, ram in, ram in, tr- ram in. That's right. Troy knew the connection. I didn't know the connection. I didn't know that you were the high priest. I do know well, of the the, the church. The though. the flying spaghetti monster revealed himself for the first time in two thousand and four to the Kansas school board. I live in Kansas, right? The Kansas school board got a letter from Bobby Henderson saying, we are all in favor of you teaching evolution in Kansas schools, as long as you teach our holy book in schools as well. And he sent them the holy uh, creation story of the flying spaghetti monster. So uh, that's that's partly how I became the high priest of the church of flying spaghetti monster, because I live in Kansas. (laughs) And I'm getting hungry just talking about it as well. Well, just uh, just realize that you are doing a sacred act when you eat pasta uh, at all in all cases. So I will also point out, having lived in Asia for many years, that eating spaghetti with chopsticks is the way to go. I know it goes totally culturally against everything with the fork and spoon stuff. But eating if you can use chopsticks, it's the best way to eat pasta. Well, that's good to know. I didn't know that. I've never tried it. And I'm pretty darn good with chopsticks. I've just never tried it with spaghetti. But tell us about the Secular Therapy Project and and why that exists. I, I will say that when I saw this, I thought, and maybe it's just because we're in Australia, but the bulk of our therapy would be secular. Why do you feel the need to preempt that with the word secular? Um, a good question, especially from the Australian perspective, because you're you are more right than wrong um, in Australia. You'd be more wrong than right in the United States. <laughs> We have so many counselors that call themselves Christian counselors or spiritual counselors. And they're, they've got degrees. They're, they've got licenses. However, I have yet to find a single country, and we're in eight countries right now, and we've got inquiries for many more, but we are actually, we have certified secular therapists in eight countries. I've never found a country that doesn't have a problem with therapists who, under the table, try to push their religion. They may have a master's degree in social work, clinical social work, and they're qualified and licensed to sit down with somebody and talk about marriage and family issues, but they will slip their Bible in here or there. They'll say, have you gone to church or have you prayed about this? It just is a, if you are a Christian, you are, if you're a Christian counselor, the fact that you're a Christian puts you under this onus to constantly proselytize and convert people. I don't, you know, these liberal Christians say, I don't do that in my practice. I'll give you an example. What I gathered was a pretty liberal Christian PhD psychologist from Notre Dame University in the United States, which of course is a Catholic university, but a very good university. I won't argue with that. He applied to become a part of the secular therapy project some years ago. I saw his application. I realized he was an active Catholic. And I questioned him, can you keep your religion out of your practice? He said, of course I can. I've, I've been trained that way. Okay, fine. 
Then I gave him one scenario. I said, you have a 20-year-old woman come into your office three weeks in a row dealing with depression. On the third appointment, she tells you she's going to an abortion clinic the next day to have an abortion. And she wants some, she wants some techniques for relaxing as she goes into the clinic because she knows there's going to be assholes out there yelling and screaming at her. How do you help this girl? It took weeks to get him to answer that question. And when he finally answered the question, it was, I couldn't help her. Well, why couldn't he help her? Because he's a Catholic. And as liberal as he may think he is, he still can't cross that line. And that's true of a lot. I mean, anybody who goes to church regularly is being constantly bombasted with notions of misogyny, of women as second-class citizens, as children subject to their parents. I mean, think of all the lessons you get. Even in fairly liberal churches, it's still there. And anti-gay, anti-trans messages, there's so much. So I am very suspicious of all therapists until they prove to me that they don't have a religious agenda. Now, I will grant you a lot of your therapists are secular in Australia. However, we, had to, we have had two people apply from Australia to the Secular Therapy Project that we rejected just in the last two years. And we don't get a lot of, I think we've got seven people from Australia. We don't get a lot of applicants from, but to have two out of, of nine that we've got, we rejected them. Why? Because they had a religious agenda. They'll, they'll tell you on their, your face that they can keep religion out, but they, they really can't. Uh, I can definitely tell you, Daryl. So I'm, I'm a social worker. So I've, I've, I've done a, a four year degree, undergraduate degree, um, practice as a social worker for, for many years. But in Australia, you do not have to, you can call yourself a counsellor without any, any qualifications. You don't have to register with any professional body and you can set it up. And we do see this and we certainly see some cowboys and some of those are definitely attached to churches where they do have counselling arms and it becomes more about praying with the person rather than working through a lot yeah. of things. So yeah. I, I can definitely verify that it does happen here, but it certainly doesn't happen on the level that you would see in the States. No, <laughs> no there are some places. Let me tell you why the Psychotherapy Project existed. Uh, one of the down, out, outcomes of publishing my two books was people are asking me for help. And I could help them with the peer support that we do in recovering from religion. But many people needed psychological support and help. And we couldn't do that. So I got out and I started trying. In 2011, I was trying to help people find a psychologist. Somebody called me from Mobile, Alabama, and I can't find a psychologist. Help me. So I would get online. I would try to find a psychologist. And what I quickly learned, and you'd think I would have already known this, but I didn't. It's hard to find a therapist that has got a religious agenda. You have to search all the way through their website and find page three says, I'm a committed Christian. Okay, that probably leaves them out because I'm not going to send someone with Christian religious trauma to them. For one, they don't even know what it is. And for two, they don't think they're going to let their religion get involved. So to openly say I'm secular would be suicide professionally, except if you're like in San Francisco or New York City. But many, many of the heart of the United States and the South are very religious. 
So I created the system whereby you can remain anonymous. You can, I get, we register therapists and we vet them. We have, we have a team of four people that looks at every application, asks lots of hard questions, looks at the website. We, we don't want anybody with a religious agenda in our database. And then once they come through, people can connect to them. You could go register right now as a client on the Secular Therapy Project. You could do it anonymously. You don't need to put a name out. And then you can connect with a therapist in your community, or you can connect with a therapist that'll do telehealth over the phone or Zoom or whatever. And and so it's like online dating, only it's it's to find a therapist. And it protects both the therapist and the client. You remain anonymous until you're ready to do business together. And it, it works beautifully. It's taken us, uh, we're now 10 years old um, in May, uh, in this coming May will be our 10th year as a psychotherapy project. We have uh, 587 registered therapists in eight countries. Most of them are in North America, but we are expanding. Like I said, I think we've got um, seven in uh, in New Zealand, Australia area. Uh, we've got a half a dozen in, in, in the United Kingdom alone. And that is growing. We've gotten a lot of applications just in the last year. It seemed like a really it's, it's really picked up. And we have 27,800 plus clients in our database, people who've gone in, registered, and tried to find a therapist. Now, not all those people may have found one, uh, and not all are still active, maybe, but that's how many people have used our service. We've got evidence of that. And you asked earlier about success, uh, Troy. That is another measure of success. We've seen, I actually have several graphs. You can just see a steady growth of our client base and steady growth of our therapist um, base as well for 10 straight years. We, we've always had uh, a very steady increase of 25 to 28% increase in our um, client base and 20% increase every year in our therapy base. Now, listen to that. <laughs> what it means is we got more people needing help than we have therapists to give that help. And that, that, band uh, width has gotten farther spread out over the years. So we need more therapists. If you are a secular therapist, uh, apply to us and we'll uh, we'll look through and make sure you meet our qualifications. Qualifications, have, they have to be uh, obviously academically qualified. They have to be licensed if there's a license in their area. And they have to prove to us that they use evidence-based practices. You know, things like cognitive behavioral therapy, mindfulness. Um, you know, there's a number of different therapies that have been proven scientifically to have valid uses in certain diagnoses. The Secular Therapy Project is not just about religious trauma, correct? Like you're actually helping it's people just, with with various challenges or various issues, but from a secular position. Exactly, which is what all therapy should be. Supernatural beliefs have no place in therapy. If the client brings up a supernatural belief, that's okay. That's the client doing it. But no therapist should ever get involved in that kind of bullshit. Praying about something isn't going to work. It, if prayer worked, we wouldn't have mental health problems. And we have more mental health problems among the most religious than we do among the less religious. I mean, there's clear evidence that religion, if it doesn't cause mental health problems, it certainly exacerbates them. I mean, when your church tells you your depression is because you don't believe hard enough. You don't believe in God. You're not praying. You're not reading your Bible. You're not going to church enough. That's not going to cure your depression. That's going to make it worse. 
And that's what we hear a lot. I'm sure, I'm, I'm sure, Brian, you've, you've seen and heard that. Both of you probably have. Mental illness is really a spiritual failing. I've heard that so many times. <laughs> uh, I, I think, but you know, both of us have certainly been told that while we were still involved in in churches yeah. as well, and we've heard it. And we we've undoubtedly prayed for people to be released from the demons yeah. that are causing them mental health issues. Yeah, and that's why so many religions, like Jehovah's Witnesses, like uh, Scientology, really, really tries to prevent their members from seeing mental health professionals. I mean, there's you can practically get kicked out of a science, being a Scientologist if you go to a psychiatrist or a, or a psychologist. And while Jehovah's Witnesses don't um, may not shun you or throw you out, they will certainly treat you like something's wrong with you if you have to go to a psychologist for your treatment. And and the same thing is true of Baptists. Baptists will say, oh yeah, you can go to a mental health person, but make sure it's a Christian counselor. <laughs> And a poorly trained one at that. <laughs> Dr. Josie McSkimming came on our show and she was talking about that the Sydney Anglicans, which is a quite a fundamentalist uh, Church of England Anglican organisation or diocese, they have a list of recommended professionals. And the first criteria is, are they a Christian and are they upholding the Sydney Anglican version of Christianity <laughs> and and then comes your your credentials etc and she said that when she stepped away then she was struck off that list so she's no longer recommended to by by the Sydney Anglican diocese but of course more than that she's now critical of them and they run a mile from her i even sense that in myself that when i was walking away from religion in in the 90s i went looking for a therapist that had no religion but the tough thing was and this is something i really want to ask you the tough thing was that person though didn't understand my background didn't necessarily understand the issues that i was facing so how do you recommend people or how do you find people a therapist that understands their issues but isn't going to play church with them well that's why i created a sexual therapy project because i will guarantee you we have 587 therapists and all 587 understand what trauma is and understand the problems that trauma that religion brings to that trauma so how do you find one you go through us i'm sorry but that's it's that simple however if you if you can't find one through us you know for whatever reason we, we have a, a document that we can send we could send i could send it to you by the way and it's a document that says, ask these questions. Before you start seeing a psychologist or a social worker, ask them these questions to qualify them, to make sure that they actually can help you. And, you know, we've got questions around, you know, what they know about religion and religious trauma and stuff like that. So I, I encourage anybody that's looking for a therapist to pre-qualify that therapist. There's, you do it. I mean, you don't just go out and say, I want that red car over there. You have a mechanic look at it. You talk about it. You look in consumer reports. You look at, you do a little research. Well, there's nothing wrong with doing some research on a therapist. Find out what the therapist's primary training is. What's their modalities? Are they, are they skilled in, you know, in the, in the therapies that would probably work for religious trauma? And we can give you that information. If you want to understand what we what our qualifications are, you can go to seculartherapy.org, the webpage, and you'll see register as a therapist, register as a client. 
I would suggest you go and hit the button that says register as a therapist and then just read the qualifications, read the requirements that we have for anyone to get into our database. And that will give you a good idea of what to, uh, you know, what you're looking for as a therapist. That, that is fantastic. And we do have a significant amount, about half of our listeners are from the, the US and Canada, but we obviously have a, a fairly significant cohort in Australia and New Zealand. Are there therapists in Australia and New Zealand on there as well? Yeah, yeah, I think a total of seven, if I recall, in Australia. We've got 14 or 15 in Canada. We're not nearly as strong because we haven't been in those countries like United Kingdom. We've got one in South Africa. We've got one in the Netherlands. We just we're trying we're trying to expand. Like like I said, we're going to get on a plane and come out to Australia. And part of the reason we're doing that is to raise awareness for the Sector Therapy Project, and to raise awareness, of course, for recovery from religion as well. Yeah, we certainly look forward to that. I think it'll be fantastic, and we look forward to connecting up with you. And we're hoping we can actually connect up face to face. Oh, face to face would be cool. We're going to be doing a number of. Uh, we haven't planned it yet. Uh, Sherry, Sherry's going to lead it and you know make it happen. Uh, Gail, our executive director, is going. She and I will be the ones coming out there. And ever, and she's the only one. We pay her a really poor salary. She's the only one that gets paid. Everybody else in Recovery from Religion, including me, everybody is a volunteer. That does demonstrate the passion that people have for the space. And certainly today, Daryl, it's, it's demonstrated the passion that you have for this space. And one thing that I, I really did love to hear, and I want to pick up on it, at, at the start, you said that, you know, what you were about and your organisation was about was hope, healing and support. And that is definitely something that um, here at, at this podcast and also the communities we've created, uh, online communities, it's something that we really, I guess, want to maintain and it's something that we want to build and, and make sure that we are coming from a positive space rather than re-traumatising people. They've been through right. enough. So yep. we, I really loved to hear that. It was, it was a beautiful thing that you said. Hope, healing, and support. You'll hear that those words from almost any volunteer. They'll say that over and over again. <laughs> we are a mission-driven organization, and the mission, in the sense that every volunteer knows what the mission is, and uh, if if you don't want to follow that mission, then don't come because we're we're going to do nothing but that. How do people connect with? Recovering from Religion, how do people connect with the Secular Therapy Project? And I understand also you've got a conference or something around religious trauma as well. Yes, right. Yeah, we are one of the sponsors of uh, Janice Selby, and you might want to have her on. She's very good. Uh, Janice Selby is running the uh, conference on religious trauma. She's the one that started it all. Uh, we have just supported her. I, we can't take a lot of credit for it, but I was the one of the keynote speakers last year and i'll be the keynote speaker as i understand it this year it's going to be uh the end of uh april 30th the last weekend of this month there's a uh, i think 75 dollars to attend but it's online so you'll hear all the speakers and the money you pay allows you to have access to all the recordings and access to the conference of course as well but you're going to get some great people. Uh, one of the former directors of the Sexual Therapy Project, Dr. Kayla Black, is going to be on talking about treatment. And there's almost no one on this planet is more qualified than him to talk about religious trauma treatment. So you'll get some really good uh, speakers. Yeah. And so go to court, court 2022, C-O-R-T 
2022, I think that'll get the website, Conference on Religious Trauma. How they can, they can also go to, uh, I would really encourage anybody, if you're interested in the subject, from a professional standpoint or even just a layperson standpoint, you'll benefit from the conference. Second, if you want to contact us, uh, you can always go to recoverfromreligion.org, and we have a chat button and a phone line. Our phone line is 184-I-DOUBT-IT. That's the way you, uh, 184-I-DOUBT-IT. And you can talk. You, we have phone lines, direct phone lines from Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, Canada, uh, the United Kingdom. So I think we got five or six, total six countries, I think, you can call directly to us and talk. And you can, of course, chat from any place on the planet. If you are in Pakistan, however, if you're in Egypt, if you're in a predominantly Muslim country or, or even some other places that are, that is a danger to talk to us, we have protocols that we insist that our clients use using a VPN so that you can hide your identity, hide your location, stay safe, and we can still help you. Uh, if you need a therapist, you can go to seculartherapy.org and uh, register as a client. Once you've registered, then you can search our database within, within so many miles of your postal code. Now, we do have a, a problem in Australia. You guys, your postal code doesn't work with Google. <laughs> so we've had a real difficult time trying to find a workaround. And we're about there, but we haven't gotten there yet. A workaround for searching our database from Australia. Because uh, you've only got four letter, four numbers in your postal code, and uh, most countries have a different system that includes at least five letters or five numbers. We do yeah, like that, to be different, and we do that, and we drive on the left-hand side of the road just to confuse you. <laughs> I, I, I think we will have no choice but to have you on again because you have so much to say, and we'd love to make this something that uh, we bring you back on in the next season or or whenever it makes sense or works for you. But certainly if you're willing to, we'd love to have you back. Sure, sure. You will be able to wholeheartedly recommend to people once you realize how, our client, how well our clients, our agents are trained and how they'll respond to you and how caring they are and non-judgmental. It's just, and, and you know, you can ask them for resources Tell them you got a fear of hell. You'll get, you'll they will instantly begin connect you with all sorts of stuff that you probably didn't even know existed. As long as we don't get a copy of Watchtower magazine or something sent to us, <laughs> we'll we'll be more than happy, Daryl. Oh no, it'll be an anti-Watchtower magazine. <laughs> yeah, very good. Well, we really appreciate you coming yep. on today, Daryl. It's been really good. I know there's a lot of lot here that's really valuable. We've We've been, you know, wanting to have you on for a little while and we've sort of back and forth and we finally got you. So absolutely brilliant. So thank you so much All for right. being a part of this. Thanks, Daryl. You take care. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.